This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Dunedin Multi-Ethnic Council On Air comes to you 6pm Tuesdays here on OR 105.4 FM and 1575 AM. Join Lux, Valerie and their special guests to hear the latest from the Dunedin Multi-Ethnic Council and celebrate unity through diversity. DMEC On Air, 6pm Tuesdays with podcasts available anytime from oar.org.nz, Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts. Good evening, this is Valerie from from Dunedin Multi-Ethnic Council, bringing you wonderful women on DMEC on air, hosted by Otago Access Radio, that's OAR-FM. Um, you can find out more about um, this pop. you can find out more about DMEC on dmec.org.nz. Um, look us up on Facebook at Dunedin Multi-Ethnic Council, celebrating diversity. Or you can listen to this podcast again on Otago Access Radio's website or.org.nz and you can hear them through 105.4 FM. Bringing you again DMEC on air on a Tuesday at 6 o'clock. So, hello. How is everyone doing? Have you been enjoying this beautiful, frosty weather? I quite like the frosty weather because that kind of means um, that we'll have a nice sunny day like it was today. Freezing, gross morning with um, a frozen car, but a really nice afternoon full of sun, clear blue skies. Today, I was hoping to... Actually, I came across this really cool article on NZ History website. It's um, a government website. You should check it out. It's very interesting. It's on New Zealand history. So it's called nzhistory.govt.nz. And they present topics or events, um, people, places, organizations. And they have articles and things about various historical information. So I was reading this essay and I thought it would be a, right, a really cool way of getting us reading through this article, this essay together and understanding a bit more about how different ethnic women, ethnic women, women of non-Pakiha or Maori ethnicities have come to New Zealand and how they've moved through society over the years. So, this essay was written by Jacqueline Leckie. It was first published in Women Together, a history of women's organizations in New Zealand in 1993 and was recently updated by Rachel Simon Kumar in 2018. Most of the organizations discussed in the book mainly catered to Pakiha women, all of them immigrants or descendants of immigrants. However, by early 1990s, a large number of women in New Zealand, or 16.5% at that time, belonged to or were descended from ethnic groups or cultures not identifying as either Pakiha or Maori. And most of these groups over time have formed their own associations, but not all of them have separate women's organisations. 
It is difficult to determine the precise number of immigrant or ethnic women groups. Well, I don't know with ethnic's a word here, or locate much evidence of their early development. Um, however, there have been some informal and written records. By the start of 1990s, studies of immigrants and ethnic minorities within New Zealand have generally ignored women's experience as migrants and the extent to which migration had been a gendered process. With the exception of some Pacific Island organisations, male dominance of official positions within most ethnic organ associations led many researchers to assume wrongly that women's roles have been had been marginal. So migration to a new land. Substantial non-British female migration to New Zealand did not develop until after the Second World War. Although before and during the war, ethnically based women's group did emerge among Chinese, Jewish, Scottish and Yugoslav women. Yugoslav women. After 1945, New Zealand's population became more multicultural, particularly with the arrival of large numbers of people from the Pacific Islands. Um, and Pacific women developed the largest and most diverse ethnic women's groups, reflecting to a large extent the importance of such organisations in the societies these migrants came from. Greek and Indian women organisations emerged once communities became established in urban centres, and by 1990, very few women's groups had been established by refugee women. Two features distinguish immigrant and ethnic women's groups. First, there is their central concern with ethnic identity, a concern not shared by groups set up by women of the dominant Pakiha culture. Second, there has been a focus on supporting new migrants and members of their own ethnic groups through both informal social activities and more specific programs. Although some ethnic groups and their organisations have been long established in New Zealand, separate women's groups were usually a more recent development. During the 19th century and for some, and for some immigrant groups, well into their 20th, male migration was the norm, so that certain ethnic communities in New Zealand, such as Chinese, Indians and Yugoslavs, were overwhelmingly male until after the Second World War. This pattern occurred partly because settlement in New Zealand was perceived by such immigrants or migrants as temporary, but also because New Zealand immigration policy and public attitudes opposed permanent settlement by ethnic groups not originating from Britain or Western Europe. One way to inhibit settlement was to forbid or discourage the immigration of women and children. And in the 1920 Immigration Act did do that. Um, oh, take that back. The 1920 Immigration Act did, however, make provision for Indian women to join their husbands or fiancés and for minor children to join their fathers in New Zealand. And after the Second World War, immigration policy more actively encouraged the migration of wives and children. The number of women of full Indian descent here, for example, grew substantially from five in 1916 to 12,558 in 1991. This reflected not only the growth of the New Zealand-born Indian community, many of whom sought partners from overseas, but also the waves of Ugandan refugees during the 1970s and of Indo-Fijian migrants since 1987.
However, there were no formal separate women's organizations in the Indian community here until Mahila Samaj and Indian women's sports teams began during the 1970s. Slightly more, but still relatively few, Yugoslav and Chinese women migrated to New Zealand before the Second World War. After 1920, an increasing number of Yugoslav women arrived as wives, brides and fiancés. And in 1940, the Yuglos, Yugoslav Ladies' Social Committee formed as part of the Auckland Yugoslav Clubs. The gradual increase in Chinese female migration partly reflected New Zealand's slowness to accept a permanent Chinese community. Um, only two Chinese women rec were recorded in the 1874 census. By 1945, the number had risen to 2,705, and 1991 census recorded 18,939 Chinese women, reflecting later migration from Hong Kong, South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, and Malaysia. Um, as Manying Ip noted, there have been diverse Chinese women's organizations here, dominated by the established Chinese communities. Non-British European women also began to migrate in much greater numbers after the Second World War. Some were displaced persons and refugees from war-torn Europe. They included women from Poland, Hungary, Greece, East Germany, forgive me if I pronounce this wrong, Czechoslovakia, Czechoslovakia and Baltic states. In 1950s, the YWCA founded social groups that were joined by many of these women and sometimes by men. The main impetus behind the upswing in post-war immigration was the shortage of labour as New Zealand's economy expanded. This was a major reason for the government's accepting the 38,314 Dutch immigrants who were estimated to have arrived after 1947. Initially, the majority were men, but by the mid-1960s, the sexes began to equalise. As the Dutch were considered easily assimilable, ideal permanent migrants, women and families were actively encouraged to emigrate. Around 6,000 Dutch, including single women, recruited for nursing, arrived between 1950 and 1968 under a subsidised scheme administered by the New Zealand and Dutch governments. As Dutch communities began to establish in New Zealand, the number of Dutch clubs grew. Women were active within these, but generally did not form separate women's clubs. Exception were the women's club founded in 1977 within the Christchurch Netherlands Society and the Tutin Club, a small group founded in 1978 in Wellington that was not attached to the Dutch clubs. These were more organised variants of Dutch women's pattern of meeting in an informal group for coffee and companionship. The bulk of female migration to New Zealand was for many decades from the United Kingdom, including Ireland. These women and their descendants had little need to form separate ethnic organisations. During the 1890s, the early 20th century and after the two world wars, the Travellers' Aid Society of the YWCA and the Girls' Friendly Society took responsibility for the welfare of women on assisted passages. The YWCA also encouraged the formation of clubs for the newly arrived overseas wives of New Zealand, servicemen from Britain and elsewhere. Some British migrants 
formed societies based on their regional background, but as the Dutch, there were very there were few separate women's groups. An exception was the British Women's Society, originally founded in 1969 as the Ladies' Dinner Club. Its members were all working-class women, the wives of skilled migrants who came to New Zealand in the 1950s, 1960s and 1970s. Of longer duration were some Scottish women's groups, such as the New Plymouth Scottish Women's Club, founded in August 1937, and the Scottish Women's Society, established in Auckland through the YWCA in 1935, and continuing until the 1960s. The Irish and Welsh associations do not appear to have sponsored separate women's organisations. Other European migrants to New Zealand included small numbers of Greeks, Swiss, Italians, Danes, Swedes, Norwegians and Austrians, some of them whom settled some of whom settled during the 19th century. The New Zealand government promoted Scandinavian farming settlements in Manawatu and Warapapa, Wararapa, so women's migration was encouraged. German family migration led to 1752 women being counted in the 1887 or 1886 census. After the Second World War, the demand for labour resulted in 500 West German and 50 Austrian women being recruited to migrate independently to New Zealand. In 1962, 267 Greeks, mainly from Crete, arrived as domestic and hospital workers. Wellington attracted the biggest concentration and Greek women there formed the separate women's auxiliary by the late 1950s. Most of the other small European ethnic groups did not have formal women's groups, although women's church fellowships within the Lutheran community played a pivotal role in providing religious, practical and social assistance to women immigrants. When New Zealand employers drew on a much closer source of labour, the Pacific Islands, Permanent settlement was not always encouraged. During 1940s and 1950s, single Cook Island women migrated to New Zealand to become domestic workers in private homes, in hospitals and on farms. Tongans, often on temporary work permits, began to arrive during the 1950s, followed by an increasing number of Samoans and Nguyenians. Apologies if I pronounce that probably wrong. During the 1950s and 1960s and Toke Lawans from the mid-1960s. The first half of the 1960s brought a large number of female migrants from the Pacific Islands. By 1966, more Samoan women than men were resident within New Zealand. Sex ratios among Pacific people subsequently tended to become even. The downturn in New Zealand's economy after 1973 limited female Pacific migration here especially after immigration regulations on migration from the Pacific Islands generally tightened in 1974. The last wave prior to 1993 was from Fiji in the wake of the 1987 coups. Pacific women's groups began during 1950s with church fellowships and women's basketball teams. Well, netball. The large number and diversity of women's groups reflected the size and growth of Pacific communities within New Zealand, the, the dynamic quality of many of these groups and the active support given to them within Pacific cultures. It also indicated the extent to which Pacific women took charge of needed services that other agencies failed to provide. 
Compared with earlier years, New Zealand's immigration policies from 1978 became slightly more multicultural and humane, particularly through provisions allowing refugees to be reunited with their families. New Zealand first opened its doors to refugees in the Second World War, and from 1970s it accepted small numbers of refugees, including Ugandan Asians, Chileans, Iranians, Baha'is and people seeking asylum for Sri Lanka and Afghanistan. The biggest refugee group was people from Vietnam, Cambodia and Laos. While they all formed ethnic association, no formal organizations for women existed. Although in the main centers, English language classes for women took on a broader supportive role. Women's groups were predominantly informal within almost all ethnic populations. Many underwent a transition from dealing with problems of immigrants to addressing the changing needs of women, including those born in New Zealand who continued to have an ethnic identity. Cultural activities, mutual support, and maintaining ethnic identity were common features of most migrant and ethnic organizations, and were often the basis from which more specialized projects emerged. Often women organizations began as auxiliaries within the wider ethnic or religious organizations, in which most of the formal positions, but not necessarily the actual activities, were dominated by men. Many Pacific women's groups, however, tended to develop comparatively autonomously. Some women's groups were not connected with an ethnic community at all, but with the experience of immigration itself. These included some of the overseas wives' clubs. Throughout much of New Zealand's monoculturally dominated history, Ethnic minority women have been subjected to overt and covert discrimination and assimilatory pressures. Maintaining their ethnic identity initially provided support for immigrant women who felt alienated within New Zealand society and missed familiar aspects of their language and culture, including the company of other women. Later, many groups shifted their focus to ensuring that aspects of their culture would be transmitted to the younger generation. This sometimes became a source of conflict. Some ethnic women's groups were criticized for clinging to cultural patterns and gender roles that that were derived from their past and form a radically different, often agrarian and village-based way of life. In many instances, the reinforcement of the traditional roles of wife and mother within ethnic communities did not appeal to younger women. However, many women considered these reinforcements necessary. In a society comparatively intolerant of ethnic minorities and cultural differences, women's, group with a, women's groups with a strong overtly domestic focus were also a conduit through which their members learned aspects of the wider society, such as law, health, or recreational activities. In turn, many pass such information on to their families. How they express, how people express, begin or learn to express their identity. Women's groups did not simply discuss ethnic identity, they expressed it. Organizing regular cultural performances, both religious and secular, secular became a common activity on which many of the older women's organizations were founded. Food was often a major focus, not just for consumption, but as a central symbol of cultural identity and tradition. Food itself could have religious significance, for example, the unleavened bread of the Jewish Passover, the prasad, which Indian women in the Mahila Samaj prepared to eat after worship, 
of the special lunch which the Polish women of Kolopolek prepared for Polish Polish women of Kolopolek prepared for Kazuk. Apologies for the mispronunciation, a celebration before Lent. Women's organizations help to transmit traditional culinary skills to younger women. The communal aspects of cooking, especially in catering for the wider community, also provided important social support, although many women's groups were critical of this role, especially members when members were also in paid employment. Several women's groups used their culinary expertise as a major source of fundraising. Overall, women's groups played a leading role in fundraising for their churches, ethnic associations, and other community projects. Some women suggested that this was crucial, a crucial reason for women's groups being permitted within some ethnic association. In addition to raising money through food stalls, bazaars, and dinners, women's groups experimented with other ventures. For example, Scottish women in New Plymouth raised money collecting with a jocks box to send parcels to Scottish family and military personnel during the Second World War. The Dutch Tutten Club held dances on a St. Nicholas Eve evening in order to donate a computer to a handicapped boy in the Netherlands. And a Pacific Islands language nest in Auckland sold hibiscus flowers to visitors during the 1990 Commonwealth Games. Language maintenance was another important activity. The growth of Pacific language nests after 1980 was phenomenal. Other ethnic groups held weekly language classes before then. Although these were not confined to preschool children, it did not usually operate specifically through women's groups. The language nests provided early childhood education and aimed to enhance cultural values and provide support for mothers. Women's groups supplied the language nests with voluntary tutors, organizations, childcare assistance, and funding. Many eth ethnic women's groups also promoted cultural identity and support through sharing craft skills. This was the specific purpose of some groups, for example, Pacific Weaving and Tiveve quilting groups, or the Women's Embroidery, Knitting and Crochet group within the Christchurch Netherlands Association. Established in 1991, crafts could have cultural or religious significance or produce goods for personal use, gifts, display and fundraising. Among Pacific women in particular, they often form the basis from which a wider range of women's community activities could be, organization, could be organized. And it's very interesting, this article goes on to talk about how women are able to um, combat to provide strength and receive strength, um, religious fellowship, refu former refugees or refugees, um, adjusting to a new community, welfare, and all these different issues women of different ethnic cultures face during the time and the organizations that have come to play to work with them, work for. So what I'll do is over the next few um, radio shows, delve more into this article and explore a little bit about um, New Zealand's history with women from different ethnic and cultural backgrounds. You're listening to me, um, Valerie from Dunedin Multi-Ethnic Council, presenting to you on DMEC On Air.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.